0: Um, this morning we have the privilege of hearing Isaac McPhee preach the the message of the whole book, all two chapters, of Haggai. And uh, I'm really grateful for this time. Isaac's a community group leader here at Summit. Uh, he taught at 845 Equip last year before we went to two services. And uh, he is a dear brother. We love him. We respect him. And uh, he... Uh, earlier this week he came in on Thursday and we, as we often do we read through one another's sermons before we preach them we get feedback from one another and Isaac read through his sermon on Thursday with Ben and I and Ben and I were struck by what a great job Isaac did capturing the heart of God's message through the prophet Haggai and he not only captures the message but the the relevance to our lives is very obvious and so I just want to encourage you to, to lean in and listen carefully To Isaac this morning. It's a privilege to have him up there. There he is, way back there. Good to see you, brother. Thank you for serving us this morning. Okay, friends, you have your finger on it now. Haggai chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. Hear now the word of the Lord. Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, All you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, some of us this morning come here and we feel disengaged and numb to your purposes and to your kingdom uh, mission, and some of us come here this morning feeling discouraged. Lord, I pray that you would meet both of us, all of us here through this inspired Word of God from the book of Haggai. Uh, Father, I pray that your blessing would be on Isaac. I pray that you would uh, anoint him, uh, help him to minister the Word of God to us with with power, with authority, with encouragement. Uh, Lord, help us to encounter you through your Word. We pray the same for our kids. May they encounter you. May they encounter the God who created everything, who who sent his son in the middle of history to die for sinners with, with our little precious people encounter you as they head back to Sunday school. We pray for that as well, and we ask all this in the name, the priceless name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen? right. Come on up. All right, so
1: here we are in week eight of our Minor Prophet series, week eight of nine. So we only have, we've got one more week of this, We've spent the last seven weeks going through uh, a series of prophets, you know, really beginning with Joel and, end, and then ending with Ryan's sermon last week on Zephaniah. Uh, and those first seven books, along with a couple others that we didn't touch on, um, are collectively known as the, the former prophets. So we've kind of finished a little kind of mini-series on, on that group of prophets, and we're actually heading into um, just these last couple weeks uh, looking at kind of a new group of, of minor prophets. Um, so I'm excited to to dig into Haggai. It's honestly this little hidden gem of a book in, in your Bible that you likely haven't spent a lot of time in, um, but I, I think you're missing out probably. Because every time I look through this book, I, I catch something new. I'm touched by it in some some new way. Um, so I'm really excited to go through it. Um, so if you've been following along, if you've been here over these last uh, several weeks, you've you've seen a. Several themes kind of repeated over and over again, woven through these first uh, seven books, the former prophets. You've seen themes of warnings to a disobedient people, uh, people who have rejected God, uh, these threats of a coming judgment. um, And then uh, also there's the hope of salvation and reconciliation that's woven through usually the ends of most of these books where God says, I'm going to you're disobedient. I'm going to punish you, but then I'm going to save you. I'm going to reconcile you to myself. So that's kind of this continuing theme through these, these other books. Um, but things kind of change a little bit here because uh, God made true to his word. He sent his people into exile. You know, Israel and Judah had fallen into this deep generational sin. Um, they had abandoned God. They'd gone and worshiped other gods. They'd fallen into idolatry. They had sought other nations for help. Um, and so God gave them up. The, Israel went to Assyria, Judah went to Babylon. They went into exile. Um, but now when we get to Haggai, we get to fast forward a little bit. Um, exile has come and gone. The people were carried off, and they stayed uh, specifically the people in Judah stayed in Babylon for more than a generation um, and then the Persians came in and, and defeated Babylon, and the people were released. Uh, King Cyrus of Persia issued a decree in 538 BC that said the exiled peoples that, that Babylon had conquered are now free to return to their homeland and rebuild. And, and so that's kind of uh, where the, the people of Israel were finally when when these latter prophets were sent to them. Um, so we fast forward; exile is now come and gone. Um, the people are, are home. Uh, and now the latter prophets are Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. These are prophets that were sent by God to speak after exile was over. So the book of Haggai, really more than any of the prophets we've looked at so far, is dependent on you kind of knowing where we are in the story. You kind of have to have a feel for, okay, this is uh, the condition and the state and the, the emotions of the feeling uh, of the people that, that he's speaking to. Um, it requires us to to understand their specific situation because Haggai is addressing, um, you know, not just a general people who are fallen into, into sin, but a, a people facing, you know, real threats and real emotions. Um, so we're going to have to talk through this story a bit. Um, we're not going to cover all of it. If you want to know more about the story, uh, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in your Bible, if you're not really familiar with them, tell this story really well. Um, Ezra is really where we 're focused on, but Nehemiah continues the story even after these prophecies um, and it they kind of cover the building of the temple and, and the wall as the people return to to jerusalem so um, and before I get too deep into the the history into the story uh, look i I get that not everyone is as as excited as enthusiastic as I am about the the history behind this right you you don 't probably read a lot of books about uh, ancient Near East cultures and traditions uh, and, and the events of this period. It's kind of one of these periods that I think most of us are kind of aware of, but we don't know a ton about. Um, you know, to be to be honest, it doesn't have uh, the kind of adventure aspects that a lot of the stories in the Bible have, right? It doesn't have any people being swallowed by whales or people fighting giants or, or being thrown into lion's dens. Um, we don't, it doesn't make a a very easy Sunday school lesson. Um, but I just want to say that it is actually a really exciting story and, and specifically because I believe that it's telling our story. It's, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, I, I believe with all my heart that this is telling uh, your story and that you can find yourself in this. So what do I mean by this? So when these Jews are released from Babylon, they're They're rescued by God and brought back into their homeland. Um, And and I believe we're being given just a a small picture of of something much bigger that's going on. God is saying to these people through the prophets, look, this is just a small taste of what I am one day going to do for all people, right? Just as I defeated your enemy and rescued you from exile and from slavery, one day I am going to defeat a greater enemy, and I'm going to rescue you from an even deeper slavery. And look, this isn't grasping at straws, right? This isn't incidental. This is very much purposeful. Uh, scripture makes it very clear that this is, is what we are meant to see in this story. When we hear about exiles returning from Babylon, we, we're meant to place ourselves in their shoes and to see that God, through Christ, has rescued us from, from slavery to sin and unrighteousness and he's brought us back into our homeland and this happens again and again in the bible think of the exodus story right where the people are are rescued and and brought toward the the promised land Um, and in fact it goes all the way back to genesis 3 and the the first exile right the exile from from the garden of eden it's all tying into kind of the same larger story where we are exiles and and god is promising to uh, return us to our homeland so once we kind of see that, once we kind of put ourselves in, in the shoes of these people, I, I really do think the, the history of it, the story of it, really starts to come alive, and we can see what Haggai uh, is speaking into. So uh, a few kind of extra bullet points, historical points as we, we go into the book of Haggai. So exile is over. The people have returned to Jerusalem with the, the intention of, and hope of rebuilding this is a, an answer to their prayers over these these decades that they've been in exile, and it's a very specific fulfillment of of prophecy. Uh, prophecies like Jeremiah twenty five are specifically being answered here. Um, and the hope was that the city and the and the temple would be rebuilt, and, and Israel would be restored as a nation. Uh, that they would be, uh, that the promises that God had made to Israel, all going all the way back to Abraham would be coming true at last, that the nations would look to them as kind of this shining city on a hill, right? Um, but the hope and the reality just didn't, didn't match up, to be honest. The, the fact was that this first group of Jews to return was just, was small. They're called a remnant in, in the Bible. They're just a fraction of what, uh, what they were when they had been carried off in exile. And and the city that they came back to was not the city that they had left. This was a city that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. The walls were torn down. uh, And most importantly, the the temple, the place that had been the symbol of God's presence and blessing, it it was just a heap of ruins. So to make matters even worse, uh, they weren't alone. You know, you can't just be carried off and leave a region and not have other people come in and fill that region. So they had neighbors now. They had uh, people who had come in and settled that area who understandably weren't pleased that, that this new group of, of returning Jews were coming with the, the intentions of rebuilding. So again, I hope that you're starting to see little, little fragments of how this story actually does relate to the story of, of every Christian. I think it is, I think it's all of our stories because when you've been saved, when, when Jesus has set you free from sin, you have to ask the question, you know, what now? Why is, why is everything not immediately better? Why is it not perfect? Why do you still struggle with so many things? Uh, you know, th- these are some of the most important questions we can ask, and, and I think these are really the questions that the people of Jerusalem were asking and that Haggai is speaking directly into. Um, So, but remarkably, when we read the book of Ezra and we're reading the story, we we find that the people actually get off to a a pretty good start. Uh, They they start rebuilding the temple. They rebuild the altar where the sacrifices are made, and they restore sacrifices. They start celebrating feasts again, Um, and they do this under really godly, faithful leadership, uh, the leadership of a governor named Zerubbabel. So fair warning, I'm going to say that name a lot, and the pronunciation may change a little bit because I haven't figured it out yet. Uh, So Zerubbabel, and a high priest named Joshua, which is a little bit easier. Uh, And so these men play just an important role in in Haggai's messages. So as soon as the, the people who are surrounding Jerusalem, these people who have lived here for decades, they hear that the temple is being rebuilt, they begin to oppose The project, they they kind of stand against it and they say, no, we don't want that rebuilt here. And their opposition is intense enough to intimidate the people of Jerusalem, and and so they lay their tools down and they stop building. They say the time isn't right to build right now, and for more than a decade, nothing happens. So you kind of follow what's happening. Then so the people have returned and they're zealous, they're eager to rebuild the temple and to restore God's presence, but now they've shrunken in the face of adversity. So that brings us to, uh, in the book of Ezra, as it tells the story to chapter 5. So that's all kind of the first four chapters of Ezra. Chapter 5, verse 1 of Ezra says this. It says, now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah, in Jerusalem, in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, because by the way uh, Joshua in Haggai is named Jeshua in the book of Ezra, just to confuse things. Uh, so Jeshua, the son of Josadak arose and began to build, rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So that's a really abrupt turnaround, right? So a decade has passed and no work has been done on the temple and then all of a sudden Ezra says, two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, begin prophesying, and they start working again. So, so what's kind of in between those two events? What did these prophets say, and what did these prophets do that actually spurred these people on uh, to return to work, to defy the opposition? So that's what we're going to get into. So uh, we'll start open your Bibles to Haggai chapter 1. As you're doing that, uh, Haggai is divided into four messages, over two chapters. They're, they're all meant to encourage the people and to spur on the building of the temple. Uh, and, and I think what Haggai has to teach us today over these, his messages can really be summarized in just two points, uh, two things that I think we are being called to along with the people in Jerusalem. So first, uh, I believe there's a call to zeal, a call to zeal. And second, there is a call to faith. So a call to zeal and, and a call to faith. So, if if you've kind of glanced through the book at all, uh, you may have noticed that all of these messages uh, are really conveniently date-stamped for us. Uh, They don't just have a year that they were given or a general era that they were given, like like most of the other prophets have, but they have the exact days, the exact dates that all of these messages were given. So, uh, you know, with that information, we can really easily uh, calculate that they were all given within a four-month period. Uh, And the first message was given on, if you look at verse 1, the first day of the sixth month of the second year of Darius, king of Persia, and it's August 29th, 520 B.C., so the the anniversary is, I don't know what you're doing for the anniversary, but it's just a couple weeks away here. So that's the day that God sends his prophet Haggai to speak. So let's look at the first message, uh, which, you know, again, I've labeled a call to zeal. So... Haggai gets right to the point. Uh, there's no messing around. He says, in, in verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So we've talked about why work on the temple stopped. These people were facing opposition, and they didn't feel secure enough in the land to to continue working. But that's not at all what God sees. Look at verse 4. God then says... Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled, your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So this description of their homes as paneled houses, that's, that's, temple, uh, that's, that's temple language. That's, that's language meant to evoke the building of the temple, which was made out of these cedar panels. So you know, God's saying to them, look, you're living in these little temples that you've made for yourself. Do you really think it's okay to focus on your own security, your own safety, your own comfort when when I am essentially homeless? Should your comfort come before me? God's presence embodied by the temple was always supposed to be central to the desires of his people. Uh, the temple was the place where God Could meet with his people. It was a place where heaven and earth came together, uh, where the presence of God uh, dwelt. That was the thing that was supposed to bring them blessing. It was the thing that had set them apart from the other nations. This should have been the absolute most important thing to them, but it wasn't. They, They were focused on their own peace, their own security. Now, they hadn't abandoned plans for the temple. Like, it was still on their minds, but as they said, the time just wasn't right. So, I don't don't think we have to look very hard to, to see how this can still be relevant to us, you know, thousands of years later. Look, we don't have a physical temple that we're being asked to build. And I certainly don't think it's wise to, to use this to maybe try to raise money for building projects in, in, in the church, you know, to grow bigger buildings. I don't think that's what it's saying to us either. Um, but look, when we're saved, when we are pulled out of exile and, and freed from slavery to sin, we are not saved just to sit around and enjoy our newfound freedom. The story of salvation isn't that God has, has rescued you so that you can go to heaven and not to hell. And so now you can just sit back and, and relax and kind of wait for, wait for heaven to come. So that's one thing. Just too many Christians haven't understood, right? When you're saved, Jesus pulls you out of sin and he tells you to get to work. There's there's a job to do, a kingdom to build. Theologians talk about this as being the the vocation of the Christian. Like we have we have work to do, we have jobs, uh, and as we read through. All the stories in the Bible from beginning to end, we're learning more and more about what it means to get to work, what it means to, to do our job as Christians. Go read Acts chapter 1, right, the Great Commission. Um, you'll get a feel for what it means to, as Christians, be, be sent out and told to, to work. I mean, don't you feel like there are probably a few dozen areas of your life where God could potentially send a prophet to you and say something like, so you say the time has not yet come to fill in the blanks, right? To, to proclaim the gospel. The time hasn't come yet to, to volunteer or to serve at church in various ways. Look, it's different for all of us, and I think that God would have plenty of reasons to send a prophet you know, to any of us. Um, and good news, that's what Haggai is doing. He is the prophet God sent to us to, to teach us these things. So um, so the people of Jerusalem, I think along with us, are being called by Haggai just to have a renewed zeal and, and zest and thirst for the building of the temple. And, and I, I believe that we as well are just being called to, to wake up, right? To to take stock of where our time and our efforts and our resources are are going, and just to be renewed, to to be renewed with a zeal for building the kingdom, building the temple of God. Of course, I can't tell you what God's calling you to personally, but I can say for certain that if you've been saved, He is calling you to do something, to to pick up your tools, whatever they may be, and, and to get to work. And so I guess an important question to ask is is then, okay, what is the temple? What is it that we are building? Because one thing we can say for certain is that it's not a building in Jerusalem, right? We're not getting plane tickets and going and flying to Israel and and working on the temple. The temple has always been the place where God dwells, where God lives in and among his people. And in the New Testament, there's several things that we talk about kind of in this language, right? When Jesus came, he said that he was the temple. He was God personally dwelling with men. He, he was the temple. And, and at the same time, the New Testament says that our bodies are temples because we have the Holy Spirit. We have God dwelling within us. Uh, therefore, we have become these little temples. And then the church itself, right, this whole body of believers that come together uh, is considered a, a temple. This is the place where God is god is present it, you know, this is this famous verse most of you probably heard in matthew eighteen twenty. it says where two or three are gathered in my name there i am among them and that word gathered literally means synagogue this is temple language so we're called to the same thing that these ancient citizens of, of jerusalem are being called to we're called to be zealous to restore the presence and activity of god among us we're called to, to thirst, to hunger for, uh, to experience God, to sacrificially seek to expand the kingdom, uh, and to in earnestly desire to, to just be in community with, with other Christians. So when God speaks to his people through Haggai, you know, he also then points to just the irony of their situation. Um, in verses five and seven, he repeats this phrase consider your ways. In other words, just take stock of of where you are and where you've been, um, and what has your search for comfort brought you? Look at verse 6. It says, You have sown much, but harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. In other words, what are you without my presence? You, you've been seeking after your own comfort, but you haven't been comfortable. Do you ever feel like that? Like, like no matter how much money you make, it feels like you're just, you're stuffing it into a bag with holes. And why is that? It's because God's blessing comes from God's presence. If you've been trying to obtain the blessings of God, uh, the blessings God promised, but have been ignoring his presence, then just your priorities are completely wrong. Uh, guy says, consider your ways. But look, God isn't calling his people to sacrifice, you know, to to repent. He's not just calling them to fall on their knees and say, I'm sorry for doing this, God. I'll try to do better. Um, He's calling them to action. He's saying, pick up your tools and build the temple. He's telling them that their priorities and the condition of their heart is demonstrated in their actions. So get back to work. If you truly desire God to be at work in you, then show it. It's really simple. If the problem stems from there being no temple, then you need to build the temple. So that's what God's calling them to do, to, to build, despite the fact that the opposition is still out there, their, their enemies are still there, uh, despite the fact that it won't be easy. It's a, it's a massive project. They're called to work on it. And to what end? What's the, what's the end goal here? Look at verse 8. Uh, It says that I may be glorified, says the Lord. So the primary goal of all of this is not that the people would be blessed, but that God would once again have a place that could be seen and through which he would be glorified, not just in Jerusalem, but everywhere, but among the nations. And that's what the people are called to earnestly desire. They're called to, to long for this. They're called to be zealous for this reality. So... If you've spent much time at all reading the Old Testament, uh, this is the point probably where you're thinking, okay, I know what this is setting me up for. This is setting me up for the people to reject the prophecy and to disobey and to go off on their own. That, that just seems to be the pattern established uh, in the Old Testament. But the story is, is encouraging. This is, this is not that story. It says in verse 12 that the people obey God. It says the people feared the Lord you know, led by godly leaders, right? A lot of the disobedience in the Old Testament is is led and initiated by ungodly, sinful kings. Uh, they have these godly rulers who, who are exemplifying obedience and leading the people, and, and so the people, it says, feared the Lord. But they still have this project, right? They still have this massive building project ahead of them, And they still have enemies. Uh, So keep going. Look at verse 13. It says, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. So God says, you know, you've got oppositions, but I am on your side. So God actually stirs up the spirits of the leaders and the spirits of the people, and he empowers them to do this work that he's asked them to do. Because God doesn't just demand obedience he actually empowers obedience. He asks us to step out in faith to say that, you know, despite everything that, that's opposing me, despite my lack of time and resources and, and lack of energy, that, that I'm still going to seek God's glory and God's kingdom, and we're still going to go after it with zeal, uh, not, after, not just in obedience, but in desire. So even if we can't do it, and honestly, we can't do it, he calls us to do it anyway, and then The miracle is he gives us the power to do it, which is just fantastic news, right? So look at the end of verse 14, and and this uh, first message culminates in this final verse. It says, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month in the sixth month on the second year of Darius the king. So a little over three weeks later, 24 days later, after that first message, work has begun again. And by all accounts, the people continue to work faithfully until the temple is built. But in the midst of that, another problem arises. And that brings us to our second big idea, uh, which I, I believe is a call to faith. So these people face kind of a crisis of faith. So uh, we're going to start it in Haggai chapter 2 here. So, and, and this second message jumps ahead to about a month after the building on the temple has resumed. And the people of Jerusalem are discouraged. They have been working, they've been faithful, but they have this just honest question, what is this that we're working on? Look at chapter 2, verse 3, and God speaks again to these people. He says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Look, even though the temple was being rebuilt... It was becoming very clear that this was not the same temple that the Babylonians had destroyed. People had heard the stories about the wealth of of Solomon when he built this temple, right? And the gold and the precious stones and all the, just it was so much bigger and grander than what they were seeing here. This, scene, this actually echoes a scene in, in Ezra chapter two that took place a decade earlier when they first came back and they first started to rebuild the temple. Uh, listen to what Ezra, how Ezra describes the ceremony of dedication. It says, it says, and all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the horse, uh, house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping this temple is is just nothing compared to the stories of that first temple and morale was suffering these people were having a conscious uh, a um, a crisis of faith so here's the thing though god isn't deaf to that crisis of faith, right? God, God isn't tone deaf to the pleas of His people. He knows exactly what they see when they look at this uh, look at this building that they're working on. And to be honest, He agrees with them. He He says, "Look, I know that there's something missing in this new temple, so this isn't a condemnation of their lack of morale. This is just God acknowledging that He hears and He understands." Uh, and he is calling them to work anyway. He's calling them to push forward, but now to do so uh, not based on what their eyes see in front of them, but in faith. He says, don't trust in what you're seeing. Trust in me. God gives actually three commands or assurances in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2 as these people continue to work. So first, uh, he tells these people, to be strong. He's be strong. This is exactly what God had told uh, Joshua as he was about to lead the people into the promised land in Joshua chapter 1. Be strong. Second, he tells them, he says, work, but with the added assurance, work for I am with you. That active presence of God would be working alongside of them, and it would ensure that their work would continue and would be successful. Uh, and in the midst of that, he also says, my spirit will remain in your midst, which is just an incredible promise when they don't even have a temple. They don't have this place where God is supposed to dwell in their midst, but God says, my spirit is with you anyway. And and then third and finally, he tells them to fear not. Don't be afraid of your enemies, but maybe even more so, don't be afraid that what you're doing might not be good enough. So he says, be strong, work for I am with you. Fear not. These aren't burdens, these are encouragements and they're, they're promises. This is God seeing what these people are seeing and reaching out to them through the prophet Haggai to remind them that, that what they're working on is actually far bigger and of far more importance than what they're seeing. So look at, look at verses six and seven. These are verses uh, that were part of the introduction to the sermon, right? This temple is like nothing compared to the temple that used to be here. So why should these people keep working Verse 6, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Like, we don't have enough time to really dig into all of this today, all of this imagery, but God is, is once again, just as he, as he had done through the prophets before the exile, he's making some incredible promises about the future he's saying that one day the temple will be a glorious thing again one day it it will truly be a place where god's glory dwells where uh his name is lifted up and all the nations will be drawn into it um and through it god will actually bring about a total upheaval in all of creation that's these are incredible promises uh and then later, so we're going to jump quickly to just the very end of the book of Haggai because uh, this final message actually ties in really well with, it, with the second message. The themes are very similar. Um, so the last verses of the book in the fourth, fourth message, Haggai just, he adds another layer to the, kind of this, a very similar promise. So beginning in chapter 2, verse 20, he actually looks directly, he's been talking to kind of the people through the leaders, and now he looks directly to Zerubbabel, the governor. Uh, and he makes more promises. So just first, who is, who is Zerubbabel? So for, he's the rightful king of Israel. He's called the governor in the Bible, but, but that's just because there's not a kingdom, right? Israel is just a city, or Jerusalem is just a city. There is no kingdom for him to be king over. Uh, Darius is the king, the king of Persia, and Zerubbabel is, is just a governor. But the people know who he is. He's the grandson of the last king of Judah, Jehoiachin. Uh, And if you look in the New Testament genealogies that trace the ancestry of Jesus back through David, uh, you know, there he is. You can find him, Zerubbabel. He's a descendant of David. He's an ancestor of Christ. In fact, if you've ever looked through the genealogies in Matthew and Luke, you might have noticed there's some very key differences. They're actually incredibly different. They trace this ancestry following completely different paths. Uh, we don't have time to get into exactly why that is today, but he, here's the interesting thing. So despite them branching off and following these different paths to get to Jesus, they have one name in common, and that's Zerubbabel. He's, he's in both of these uh, family trees. So no matter how you trace the lineage uh, of Jesus, Zerubbabel, this governor of Jerusalem who oversaw the building of the temple, uh, is clearly an important, a key figure And in this final message, God declares just how important he is. Let's look at chapter 2, verse 21. It says, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. So the same language that he had used uh, when he was promising uh, what he was going to do through the temple earlier in chapter 2, doesn't it? Uh, Keep reading. It says, I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, Uh, and that's language from the Exodus, from Pharaoh and and his armies being drowned in the Red Sea, Um, and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So, you kind of see what's happening. God is taking the man who should be the rightful king of Israel, a man who's proven himself faithful in the building of the temple, and he's saying, look, though you may not have a kingdom, I am going to give you a kingdom. I'm going to use you to overthrow the nations and to conquer the armies of the nations. So God promises to make Zerubbabel like a signet ring, which this is a ring that gives uh, kingly power. So a king has this ring and he can grant it to a subordinate and say, this person speaks and acts on my behalf as if he was the king. And this is how the kings of Israel were always supposed to operate. They were God's representatives among the people. But we actually learn in Jeremiah chapter 22 that when Judah was sent into exile in Babylon, God then spoke through Jeremiah to King Jehoiachin, Zerubbabel's grandfather. He said, As I live, declares the Lord, though you were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hands of those who seek your life. So God is now restoring that signet ring. The the ring that means a, a representative of godly power He's restoring a human representative for himself. He's doing it through Zerubbabel. But of course, Zerubbabel would not do any of this. He wouldn't conquer any nations and he wouldn't defeat any armies. He would never take the title of king. He would never sit on a throne. But those promises were real and they would come true. They were just not through Zerubbabel, but through his descendant, through Jesus Christ. Right? God has seated Jesus on the throne he, as king and ruler. And even right now, he's working to overthrow kings and armies and to turn all of creation upside down. He's working to grow his temple and to bring glory to himself. So it's in him that the, this newer and greater temple is growing and expanding and overcoming, fulfilling these, even the, the loftiest promises made through Haggai. So Jesus became the embodiment of the true purpose and intention of the temple. And this building, this thing they were working on that they said, this is nothing, this was a a sign and a symbol of what was to come. And that doesn't make the work they were doing any less important. It actually makes it, I think, far more important. So once again, I I think that what God is teaching these people through Haggai just has such clear application to all of our lives and they actually both of these messages they work really well in tandem they work together because maybe you have heard that first call the call to zeal right maybe you've taken that to heart and you've said yes i'm going to be zealous for the kingdom of god i i'm going to desire god's presence to be working among us i'm going to desire the kingdom to grow and i'm going to ask god what can i do to make that happen so that's great so so you're going to take action does that mean that everything is going to go exactly according to how you planned it yeah no it it, almost guaranteed it will not uh and just because you've stepped up and decided to start being vocal about your faith let's say maybe you, you go to work and you start telling your coworkers about jesus does that mean you're going to immediately see fruit from that work if you start preaching the gospel and and the only response you get is laughter How quick are you to be discouraged? How quick are you just just to give up? Maybe you decide right here at church, you you say, I'm going to serve. I'm going to start teaching Sunday school, and I am just on fire for this idea. I'm going to shape and mold young minds. Uh, And then you show up for your first day of teaching, and there's one kid there, and he doesn't want to listen to you, right? Uh, And then maybe that happens for a while. Look, have you ever faced anything like that? Have you, ever, have you ever had zeal and wanted to do something and committed yourself and then it just turned out like nothing like you'd hoped? And that's the encouragement here. Don't, don't be deceived by what you see. Don't, don't lose faith in God's plans just because your results may look insignificant to you. I was reminded just yesterday as I was, as I was preparing for this sermon of this message that, that Ben gave in January when he told the story of Adoniram Judson. I don't know if any of you were around for that or remember that. And that's, that's his story kind of in a nutshell is he's this first missionary to Burma and he works for years. He has family members dying around him and it's years before he sees his first convert, right? He, he had ample opportunities to give up and no one would have blamed him. No one would have, would have said, no, you didn't work hard enough. Uh, but I think he was reading the book of Haggai uh, and, and he said, no, I'm not gonna trust in what I'm seeing. I'm not gonna trust uh, that my eyes are telling me that the work I'm doing is unfruitful and worthless. Uh, but he trusted God, right? And that's what we're called to. Like, I don't hope that none of us are going to face situations similar to that, but, but we're going to face things like that. We're about to, to plant a church in downtown Puyallup. What happens if we throw open the doors on day one and no one shows up? Do we just, do we turn around and say, okay, good God wasn't behind this after all, I guess. And do we just give up? So no, go read Hebrews 11, right? Faith means that we trust in God's plans even if we won't live to see them come to anything at all. And we do that because we can look back and see that this is the way God has always worked. God's faithfulness in fulfilling his promises through Jesus allows us to press forward in faith that he will continue to be faithful And that he will turn our zeal and our work into something great. Look, I think the book of Haggai is just filled with uh, little, honest, unfiltered details about what life is really like for the people of God. It doesn't pretend like we've got it all put together, right? It doesn't pretend like uh, everything we put our hand to is going to be immediately blessed by God and is going to be successful Uh, and if only we have faith, right? Uh, That's what I want you to see. So this is, it's the story of how we're rescued out of slavery, that we're called not just out of something but to something uh, because we recognize that the story isn't over, that we are called to work. We're called to pick up our tools and zealously desire to grow the temple and the kingdom But it's an acknowledgement that there are times, in fact, probably most of the time, that we struggle to see what it is we're working on. And there are times that we just have to push forward in faith, faith that the promises God made in and through Christ will be accomplished just as they always have been. I don't know about you, but I I don't find it difficult to find myself in this story. uh, And and I don't find it difficult to, to come away from here saying, I need to reassess some things i need to think through my priorities what am i using what excuses do i have to put off what god wants from me and when i do work on something how do i uh, have faith despite every evidence in front of me that god is is working through that and will bring it to fruition and bless it well it's through reading this story it's through understanding that god has always been faithful and he's always worked uh, for the good of his people and for the, his own glory and uh, for his kingdom. So let's go ahead and pray. God, uh, we thank you for the words of Haggai, God, for, um, for words that, that most of us uh, have overlooked in, in our Bible and have, have kind of skipped past thinking that maybe it relates to to people of a different time and a different place and a different culture, God, but we thank you for the fact that your word uh, is beneficial to all people at all times, God, that, um, that the way you have saved and the way you have worked through people uh, for thousands of years is the way you continue to promise to work through us now, God. We thank you for your son. God, for the ultimate fulfillment of these promises, God. We pray for uh, the growth of your kingdom, God, for your kingdom to come and to to overthrow nations and kings and armies, God. Um, And we pray that you show us our place, show us the work that we are called to do in this kingdom, uh, and to, um, yeah, we, we pray that we will Be strengthened in our faith, God, that we will trust you over ourselves, God. I pray this in Jesus'
0: name. Amen.